Welcome to the 10th year of the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. A couple things before we get started this week. First up, I hope you enjoyed our two-week 2021 beginning chats with artists from the Hammers Made in L.A. Biennial, which will also open at the Huntington in the weeks to come. When California begins to recover from COVID and the exhibition opens, we'll be back with a fifth Made in L.A. artist, and we'll make sure our listeners know that the Hammer Museum and the Huntington are ready for y'all. Next, if you're an iTunes user, it's time to fill our Apple Podcasts page with five-star ratings and reviews. I haven't begged for those in a while, but with the holidays over and 2021 well underway, now's a great time to help the algorithms point more potential listeners to art, artists, curators, authors, and the rest of our guests. Thanks very much. This week, Michael Rakowitz. He's the winner of the 2020 Nasher Prize, given by the Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas. Accordingly, the Nasher is showing an exhibition of Rakowitz's work through April 18th. It includes work from Rakowitz's series The Invisible Enemy Should Not Exist, a 2007 and after engagement with the looting of the Iraq Museum in Baghdad in the wake of the United States-led invasion. The series includes placeholders for many of the 15,000 artifacts that were stolen or lost in the museum's partial dissolution. The Nasher exhibition also includes Rakowitz's stop-motion film The Ballad of Special Ops Cody. Be sure to visit manpodcast.com for images of lots of Rakowitz's, and links to his website, which features fantastic representations and information about his work. Concurrently, the Wellen Museum at Hamilton College in Clinton, New York, is presenting Michael Rakowitz's Nimrod through June 18th. As of the publishing of this episode, the exhibition is open only to members of the Hamilton College community. On the second segment, Cincinnati Art Museum curator Julie Aronson joins me to discuss Frank Duvenick's career. But first, Michael Rakowitz, after the break. Hi, everyone. I want to tell you about a free new app called Bloomberg Connects. It lets you access museums, galleries, and cultural spaces around the world anytime, anywhere. The app doesn't address just a single institution or one exhibition, but instead takes a portfolio approach by offering access to many different cultural institutions through a single download. On Bloomberg Connects, you can discover new cultural offerings, including some with which you might not be as familiar, creating exciting opportunities for you to find new ideas that address your interests across geographically disparate institutions. Bloomberg Connects currently has guides available for many institutions in New York and London, including New York's Drawing Center, which is now showing 100 drawings from now, drawings made during 2020, a year of global unrest that was dominated by health and economic crises and responses to systemic racism across the globe, and Edie Fake, Labyrinth, a site-specific, architecturally fantastic wall drawing. Bloomberg Connects was created by Bloomberg Philanthropies as part of its ongoing support of cultural institutions. Download Bloomberg Connects today to access digital guides, to hear from artists, curators, and experts, and to get the stories behind exhibitions. You can download Bloomberg Connects on the Apple app and Google Play stores and from app.bloombergconnects.org slash modernartnotes. Compare and contrast. This foundational method of analysis, first championed in the late 19th century by Swiss art historian Heinrich Wolflin, is at the heart of an exhibition of well-known and beloved works at Sheldon Museum of Art. Through July 3, 2021, the exhibition Sheldon Treasures presents works in pairs, inviting fresh and unexpected conversations between the works and among viewers. Richard Diebenkorn, Edward Hopper, Helen Lundberg, Ed Ruscha, Kay Sage, and Wayne Thiebaud are among the artists included. For virtual galleries, learning guides, and information about online events, visit 
sheldonartmuseum.org. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston has just opened the new Nancy and Rich Kinder Building for modern and contemporary art, capping the completion of a decade-long project to complete the Susan and Fayez as Seraphim campus. Visit mfah.org slash getmodern. And we're back. Michael Rakowitz, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks for having me, Tyler. At the risk of going into the vault too deeply right off the bat, about 15 years ago, you did an interview with Nick Stillman for the New York Foundation for the Arts, in which you said that the early to mid-1970s destruction of the Pruitt-Igoe housing project in St. Louis was, as you said, really important to me and in some ways influenced all my work. So I don't mean to be a wise ass, but you were born a year after the demolition of Pruitt-Igoe began. We're about the same age. <laughs> so in terms of your early career, what were some of the ways in which the destruction of Pruitt-Igoe informed and motivated you? For me, the way that I got to Pruitt-Igoe was the way that most people, I think, do, and that was through architecture classes at university. And it was something that allowed for me to look back on my life growing up in a suburb of New York City. And as somebody who, whenever we would go into to Brooklyn, to places like Sahadi's to pick up the spices for the family or to go to New York to see museums, we'd always drive past Lafrac City. And if we went to Yankee games or went to the Bronx, we were always driving past Co-op City. And so I was very aware of these high-rise structures and and it being a kind of uh, symbol of the way in which people live in the city. And Manhattan was always a place that we went to and came back from. It was never a place where we stayed. And so after I, I grew up a bit more, I understood the exclusivity you know, of, of living in that part of New York. And when I got to to grad school at MIT and every architecture professor was beginning lectures with an image of Pruitt-Igoe's destruction, not Pruitt-Igoe as it stood, it was used as a kind of demarcation to locate us in where we, where we were in that moment in the mid-1990s, that there was a very bombastic statement by Charles Jenks that said on July 15, 1972 at 3.31 in the afternoon, I think that's what he says, but when the dynamite more or less rips through the Pruitt-Igo housing units is the precise moment where modernism ends and postmodernism begins. And so to see that kind of threshold as something that's actually locatable, the way that somebody might be able to kind of go into the fossil record and see a point where some great fire or some other kind of cataclysm is visible through through geological sediment or whatever, I started to think about the absurdity, saying that this is where modernism and its ideals are are completely abandoned or that there's a withdrawal from it. So I started to understand that that threshold was about, I think, a kind of a death of the different kinds of social programs that seemed to identify America at a certain point, that it was the 1949 U.S. Housing Act that allowed for Pruitt-Igoe to be considered in the first place. And all of these things that were supposed to add to the democracy of space that those housing projects were supposed to provide was something that was repealed in the mid-50s when the Housing Act is repealed. 
you start to see the impact of the idealism in Minori Yamasaki's design start to become severely compromised. So certain things like skip-stop elevators and indoor recreation centers where kids could play and not get in the way of automobiles on throughways, you know, these were things that were being considered at the time, as well as sun and space and greenery, which were like Le Corbusier's three essentials of urbanism. And so when this was presented to us almost like a martyr on a crucifix, you know, in this picture, I started to kind of really understand the evacuation of the modernist sensibility of there being a kind of design of not just good intentions, but a design that was meant to disperse not only good taste, but comfort and a democracy of, of materials really started to kind of slip. And it's interesting to talk to people who lived near and lived in the Pruitt-Igo housing units, because in the way that, that the architects, you know, talk about concrete and rebar construction being that democracy of materials that that really was not a material of freedom it was a material of control and containment and so i started to realize that like this was where there was a disconnect between the intentions of the design and also the result and what the impact was and so i started to really think about that a lot as i approached some of my first projects like parasite which is this ongoing project where i construct inflatable shelters for homeless people every winter. And the custom-built shelters attached to the ventilation ports of buildings, heating, ventilation, and air conditioning systems, so the warm air that's leaving the building simultaneously inflates and heats the double membrane structures. And for me, this was a project that was meant to work within that that frame of modernism's, I don't know, desire to be useful. But it also was meant to problematize a problem and to use that the last bit of materiality that seemed to be attached to modernism, which was the inflatable, as something that was not just about like these ambitions for us to look upward towards the sky, but to actually ground it and to have it so that it, the exploration of space becomes the appropriation of space and like I said, it just kind of like that that project and its connection to that experience of looking at modernism's quote unquote death was something that I think really started to define the way it is that I work not only with materials, but also with people. That's interesting because it points to kind of where I, I wanted to go in terms of utopian ideas. So in talking about Parasite or maybe in terms of another of your fairly early works, Plot, which dealt with, for shorthand purposes, parking spaces in the city. We'll have a link to that project on manpodcast.com. You know, those are projects of yours that have played around with the idea of utopianism and its potentials. But there's a long line of your work that has been more interested in the destruction of utopian ideas particularly in your address of museums, particularly in your address of museums with permanent collections, permanency itself being something of a utopian idea. So as you look back on, on the first 20 years of your career, is the destruction and indeed the many dramatic and sad photographs of the destruction of Pruitt-Igo at least as important as the utopianism of the project was in the first place? 
I, I definitely feel that way. In fact, you know, there's a sorrow that I have that, you know, there was maybe just a kind of dearth of access to these images in, say, 2005 when I started to work on the project. Del Roar, for instance. You know, yes, I'm sorry. I should, have, I should have introduced that. Among other things, it was a wooden platform installed in a, in a Chelsea gallery with an inflatable... I don't know, air quotes version, <laughs> winking air quotes version of Prudigo that inflated and deflated as, as a viewer watched it from a wooden platform. Right. And actually thinking about the way that that housing unit looked, you know, I've seen access to images grow in those 15 years that showed the way that it looked when it was standing. You know, to see those 33 11-story units, you know, really is the kind of image that I want to stay with a little bit more than just the image of the destruction, which I think, you know, the, the image of the ruin is always something that I think attracts us. In fact, Louis Kahn said something about this that James Wines used in the introduction to de-architecture, where, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but Kahn more or less says that when a building is being built and you're driving past it on a highway and you see the concrete structure being laid for the foundation and you see the wooden studs go up, you tend to slow the car down, you know, to take a close look. But when the skin gets put on it and it ends up looking like every other house, you know, it becomes less something that enters into, you know, your your view. And and Khan kind of relates this to the experience of seeing ruins. You know, why do people go to the Roman Forum, which is an ocean away? And the reason is that, you know, the, all of those pieces are, of course, located in its history. But what is the pure pleasure of looking at the ruin? Well, it's because it's that similar moment where the building is telling you how it was made, where the column is showing you how it was supposed to stand, and that the spirit of the building itself, you know, the process of building, building as verb, not as noun, it returns to the work. And and I thought that that was really telling. And I also don't want to disaggregate that from the problem of like the human propensity to, I think, be driven towards, you know, images of violence. But I wish that the dignity of what Pruitt-Igo was supposed to be was something that would be the first image that would come up, you know, what the intentions of it were. You know, it, it's interesting to think about it also in the moment of desegregation, because by the time the building opens up in the, the 60s, you know, desegregation has already been passed down. And so Pruitt, which was supposed to be for black occupants, and Igo, which was supposed to be for whites, became integrated. But of course, you know, it was still very segregated as it was occupied 98% by black citizens. You know, so I think about what it means for Yamasaki and his team to have been designing something that was supposed to be segregated housing and ultimately becomes desegregated. And to think about what a redesign process might have looked like, you know, because people were not thinking about that in terms of design of what does a desegregated modernism look like. And so, you know, there are all these moments that I wish we could go back to that would be defined by images that it would make us look closer to that rather than to this like last gasp of air. And so when I think about like the utopian project of the museum, you know, I'm less inclined to completely abandon 
the possibility that the museum could could be a utopian project. That, for instance, let's say an encyclopedic museum could be, you know, something that's based on on mutual curiosity amongst the world's cultures. But before we do that, we have to address the fact that it is a kind of project that sits on top of, you know, its 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 invention in the West and in the global North, and something that you know, is is sitting atop a foundation of, of extractions. And I think that in the process of whatever you want to call it, a reckoning or decolonization or restitution, you know, wh- whatever it is that we engage with, my hope is that, that it, it, it allows for us to kind of have a moment of redress where, where we can actually imagine what a, what a museum that's based on mutual exchange would look like. And and I think that way about these, you know, these stories about modernism, that in a way we have to be more careful about the stories that we tell. You know, I think that the Charles Jenks quote is a great quote because it makes a mess, you know, and it forces the person who hears it to like really wonder, like, is that true? You know, can we really say that there's an identifiable moment where modernism ends and postmodernism begins, you know, but Maybe the better question is, you know, is there an identifiable moment where the conditions that accommodate modernism are completely disappeared to the point where the only thing that can happen afterwards is, you know, what happens with postmodernism? You know, so I'm I'm interested in in the intersection of those two things, but I always think about it through material. And I think one of the details that came out of that Pruitt-Igo project that I found so fascinating was, again, James Heathcott. When I was speaking with him, I asked him, you know, where did the rubble go? You know, where did the rubble from Pruitt-Igo go? And he told me that a lot of it was carted off to Ladue, Missouri, to be used as the foundation for the building of these, like, McMansions. And Ladue in 1972 was one of the most expensive North American suburbs. And if you think about just like the symbolism of what that means, you know, there's a lot to unpack there, but that's the reality in the way in which like, you know, you have the the materials in conversation with one another there. Yeah, Ladue is about seven or eight miles by airline from where Pruitt-Igo was. To round out a couple of historical references here, obviously Pruitt-Igo is, is there no more. But across the street, across Cass Avenue, the federal government is building a massive federal complex, more than a federal building on a piece of land three times the size of the land on which Pruitt-Igo sat. And, and I guess the other perhaps obvious utopian meandering is that Minoru Yamasaki would also design the World Trade Center in New York City, itself a utopian project, but not one oriented around Republican ideas, but instead around the extension extension of capitalist hubris. So you raised materials a moment ago, and and since we got to talking about museums and where objects go, air quotes, permanently, as being a utopian idea, I'm interested in how you've often made work that addresses and in conceptualist form repairs the destruction of cultural heritage. In The Invisible Enemy Should Not Exist from 2017 onward, you have remade objects- Uh, 2007. I'm sorry, 2007 onward. Yes, I'm sorry. I can't, I can't read my own typing. Uh, you have remade objects stolen from the Iraq Museum in Baghdad in the wake of the Anglo-American invasion and in a sculpture for London's fourth plinth 
you made a replica of a 2,600-year-old sculpture which had stood at the Nurgle Gate in Nineveh, Iraq, in which the U.S. and, of course, British invasion effectively paved the way for ISIS to destroy in 2015. So appreciating that you're primarily addressing destruction and erasure, have you thought about whether or how to address the original meanings and original uses of objects that were destroyed? You know, for me, I think that there's there's a way in which that's come into the project through its own process. I think consciously, when I first began the project, it really was about imagining, you know, all of these things that had disappeared coming back as a kind of effigy or a ghost. And there were all different kinds of of uh, reasons why I started to enlist the materials that I've enlisted, which are the packaging of Middle Eastern foodstuffs that one finds in the U.S. in in cities where there is an Arab presence. And a lot of this hinged on the fact that I found out that in my own my own shopping for my family, my mother's family coming from from Baghdad as Jews that had to leave in the 1940s that I was I was looking for date syrup that would be closer to the kind of handmade date syrup that my grandfather used to make. And my mother used to complain that the only things you could get in stores were either from California or from Israel, where the, the filtration process was just really, you know, ironically whitening or lightening the, um, the date syrup. So I found a can that was that said that it was product of Lebanon and at Sahadi's and Charlie Sahadi knew my grandparents, you know, from when they first came to the States. And, and he told me, your mom's going to love this. It's actually from Baghdad. And I said, well, it says product of Lebanon. And he told me that the date syrup is shipped across the Iraqi border from, from Baghdad, where it's processed, to Syria, where it gets put into unmarked tin plate steel cans. And then it goes over into Lebanon, where it gets marked you know, and labeled. And that was how the Iraqis had circumvented the UN sanctions from 1990 to 2003. And so I saw this object as something that was really holy because in archaeology, you know, a bowl, a bowl becomes valuable, for instance, because of the provenance when you're able to locate it and say that it was from, you know, the palace of Ur from antiquity. And you know that for sure. That's what gives it its value. And this was date syrup that couldn't tell me where it was from. You know, it was too scared to tell me where it was from, almost like the pressures of xenophobia had been exerted on it and had sculpted its fear. And so I started to think about, you know, these things not being a one-to-one -one relationship and making these things, many of which were like plates and bowls that were used, you know, as luxury objects by royalty, you know, out of the things that would be used to make meals that came from that part of the world. You know, for instance, uh, something from the Neo-Assyrian period, a bowl from the Neo-Assyrian period that my studio and I may have been reappearing, you know, from the Iraq Museum is made from the things that go into a modern bowl, you know, for a family that comes from the north of Iraq, you know, that has settled in the United States. So there is that kind of circular ecology of materials without it actually being able to necessarily function as a bowl because it's made out of these vulnerable materials which is kind of the point you know it, it stands against you know anything being able to be completely reconstructed because all it can really be is a placeholder and i'm adamant about about that being you know a part of the work but to your question 
one of the things that happened as I started to look more and more at those images of broken vitrines from the Iraq Museum, you know, these images that were taken in April of 2003, right after the museum was looted. And I thought about, you know, the idea of breaking the vitrine so that that thing that is in there, that vessel, you know, can still perform what it was supposed to perform for the people that are from that place. And that led me to kind of look at my own collection, my own collecting habits. And I grew up collecting, you know, my father got us, me and my brothers, into baseball collecting when we were growing up. And so we became these huge completists. And so I started to apply that same kind of obsession, you know, to everything that I did. You know, even with Pruitt Igo, I have like a little collection, you know, of, of uh, an archive of things that I've kept. But growing up as an Iraqi Jew, you know, who heard these stories about everything that had to be left behind, you know, I started to become interested in, well, what, what made it out with the people? And so after I developed this project where I was reappearing the objects from the Iraq Museum, I started to realize that what was in my own collection were these plates. And these plates were not like China, you know, because the China broke, you know, when people were told only what they could carry, you know, was allowed out of the country. The ceramics often broke on the way, but it was the metal trays that survived. And so I had started to collect these trays from, you know, family, friends, but also from different, you know, antiquarians, you know, for instance, in Ramat Gan in Israel. There's a lot of places that you go to, like these these antique shops, and you'll find the silver Shabbat dish, you know, used on the Jewish Sabbath from an Iraqi family because they had to give it up, you know, in order to earn money when they first arrived. And so, you know, unable to repatriate these objects to the families, you know, I've kept them in my collection, but I've started another project that's based on these culinary projects that I do called Dar al-Salh, which means domain of conciliation, which is the sphere of the Islamic world to which the Iraqi Jews belonged, you know, where I make these Iraqi Jewish meals in places in the Arab world. And I use these plates, you know, to serve the food. And it makes these ghosts you know, present at the table. But it really is about that desire to break the vitrine and to take what was in there and to use it so that the culture cannot just be declared dead. You know, there is something about the museum that becomes a bit dangerous when when it starts to kind of look at a culture as something that's that's static and has a, you know, discernible beginning and end when we know that that those objects that are in those museums belong to the ancestors of, of people who have continued in one way or another. As you have remade objects of, of whatever sort, whether they were from the National Museum in Baghdad or, or, or other objects, you know, as you mentioned, you're using modern materials, food wrappings and such, and these modern materials are inevitably quite colorful. So, for example, the Invisible Enemy works at the Nasher now are mostly uh, bright red, bright yellow, bright blue. Other works are, are different colors, but they're bright and they're very colorful. This is all a long way of asking how important that color is to you, not in terms of that color being held within the, 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 the food product labels, but 
coloring images and objects that at the moment of their destruction or removal might not have been colored anymore. How important is color to you and why? When I first started doing this project with my studio assistants in 2006, 2007, there was, I think, you know, a kind of desire, you know, when I made some of the first few artifacts, like I, I wanted to see if I could make this this statue of a monkey, tiny statue of a monkey that had been stolen, you know, out of one anchovy box, you know, to see if there was a way of staying within the limitations of one box. And then eventually the scale got to the point where, you know, some of that limitation just had to be surrendered. And as I was making them, I started to realize like, oh, there's a, there is a kind of like the, like there's color that's happening in this work that had never happened in my work before. Like I, I'm a really terrible painter and there's a reason I just, I don't paint. I haven't painted since freshman year of college. So you're welcome art world. And so when I started to work on this and realized that like, you know, also having multiple hands make these things freed me up from being too precious about it. You know, it allowed for the color to kind of just be. And when Dr. Dani Georgiou-Khanna, who was the former director of the Iraq Museum, he was the director when the looting occurred, and then eventually he had to leave Iraq because he was threatened by insurgents. He ended up in New York, and he came to the exhibition of, of the project when it was first shown at, at Lombard Freed Gallery in New York. And, you know, he commented that the the size was was right. Like my studio and I really got the size right. And and he was very moved to be in front of these things. But he says the co the color was just like that was just a theory that archaeologists had. Nobody had an idea, but we he knew that a lot of these objects were colored in antiquity. And that's what made them strange and that's what made them different and that's what made them a ghost for him, you know, because he kind of said that like a ghost, when it comes, you know, to haunt or assure people, depending on who you are, to the ghost, it'll show up differently than it looked in real life. And so that's what allowed for, for this to be an experience for him where like when he walked into the gallery, he said, this is probably as close as I'm ever getting to these objects again, because he didn't expect to return to Iraq. When my studio and I started to work on the Northwest Palace in, of Nimrud, which is the piece that you were talking about at the Nasher, is room F. You know, this is a palace that was built in the ninth century BC for by Ashur Nasirpal II in the Neo-Assyrian period. And it was in northern Iraq, not far from where Mosul is, current-day Mosul. And we know that those panels were painted. And in fact, Bowdoin College did research years ago, and they uncovered the colors of one of the reliefs. And that informed the chromatic pattern that my studio and I used to make room N. Room N, as in Nancy? Exactly. And that was the first room that my studio and I re reappeared. And I should say that we reappear this palace room by room, and it's to the inch. The floor plan represents what it was in antiquity. And so, you know, as we've made more and more rooms, for instance, we have room H, which is now on view at the Welland Museum up at Hamilton College in upstate New York, we know that that room wasn't yellow. 
We don't know for sure exactly what it was, but what we do know is that the archaeologists have said that it's a lot like, you know, what they've been able to discover with the Buddhas of Bamiyan in Afghanistan is that they were painted multiple times. And each time they were painted different colors. And those colors often responded, you know, for instance, in Nimrud to the whims of the king, you know, so that each room was a little different. But to your point, they are colored and it wasn't the reason I did this, but I think it's an actually really incredible subconscious moment, you know, that it, that it, it addresses polychromy, you know, because when we think about these things that get excavated in Greece, or in this case, in what's modern day Iraq, you know, it comes out of the ground monochrome, you know, which looks really nice and neutral in a Western museum. Or meaningfully white. A meaningfully white, exactly. Especially in the 19th century context, yeah. Totally. You know, so if I think about the color returning to these objects, it's almost like the blood returning to the veins of the figures. And there's some kind of life, you know, that returns. And so that's been a nice aspect of the project that has emerged as we were making it. I still insist that when I'm making work that I'm that I'm not totally clear on exactly, you know, all the different details that are going to emerge that it's that I'm still going to be surprised and that's been one of the moments that I've really enjoyed is just, you know, this way in which color has returned to the work and, and also that the archaeological record so far only knows so much. And so my project in and of itself is also offering a certain amount of speculation as to, you know, what these objects might have looked like, you know, to think about, you know, for instance, the cuneiform inscription you may have seen in the Nasher. Each of these panels have a cuneiform inscription that runs across it. And it's the same thing repeated over and over and over again. It's a standard inscription that just more or less says, like, Ashurnasapal, king of Assyria, king of the world, stepped on the necks of his oppressors, had his enemies' heads, you know, piled high as towers. I mean, they really are like WrestleMania boasts. You know, these, these are not humble people. But those were actually, I just found out recently that the cuneiform was often presented in Egyptian blue because Assyria had at one point conquered an Egyptian territory. And so they were able to more or less harvest this blue. And so that might find its way into one of the next rooms that my studio and I end up making. That's fascinating. The, the color in the works we've been talking about comes from, according to the object labels, Middle Eastern food packaging. We've already talked about food a little bit. I appreciate that, you know, food isn't just a significant subject in your work, but that it stands in for culture, that a people or a region's cuisine is a manifestation of its geographical place, and it's now often changing climate, the relation of a people to that place, and so on. But is food and its byproducts, if, if packaging is a byproduct. I think that's not the right word. But is food also important to you because it spoils, because it's temporal, because unused it decays? I do think about what food meant to me growing up, you know, that it was a moment in my house where I realized, you know, we weren't like everybody else. You know, you grow up, I, I grew up on uh, in suburban Long Island. And you know, I I, re I realized when I would go and have like play dates at an early age with with my friends that their houses smelt really different. And I would get home and I would feel comfortable when I would come into this place that smelled of curry and smelled of cumin. 
and that was, you know, because of the way in which we had this intergenerational family. My grandparents were still alive. Well, my grandfather died when I was two, but my grandmother was was alive on until I was ten. And so, so I think it had this like really, you know, kind of sensorial presence in in my life and it was also the place where the arabic was spoken the kitchen was the place where the arabic was spoken and it was that sort of intergenerational meeting between my mother my grandmother and me you know sitting there you know trying to draw mighty mouse perfectly you know as as a as a five-year-old or six-year-old and so that to me was a, a moment that's always been a memory you know and i've come back to it in different ways over the years but you know, when you when you become aware of who you are, and for me, my becoming aware of who I was, you know, took a weird turn in the 1990s when Iraq became this place that was, you know, demonized. You know, it, it was it was a moment of punctuation for me. I think you realize that you know the place, or I realized that the place that my my grandparents fled to was going to war with the place they fled from. You know, and and there were all different kinds of stories about Baghdad that I grew up with that were now, you know, sort of like, you know, it seemed temporal. It seemed like it was located in a place and time that was was never going to come back and that those stories were somehow at risk. And if I think about what you're saying about about food spoiling, you know, the thing that I know about food spoiling is that it can always be renewed by just knowing what the recipe was. You know, like, like there was something that happened. I told you the story of the date syrup before. You know, but the the kind of prelude to all of that, the reason why date syrup has this kind of like holy space in in the family or holy presence is my grandfather used to make it by hand. And when he died in 1975, he left a freezer full of the date syrup and the family would use it every Passover because in in Iraqi Jewish families, we uh, one of the things that goes on the Passover Seder plate is called charoset, which is supposed to be a kind of surrogate for the cement that was used in ancient Egypt by the Hebrew slaves to build. And so the Ashkenazi Jews, you know, make this mix with apples and, and Manischewitz wine, that horrible wine, and honey and walnuts. And the Iraqi Jews, you know, used date syrup and, and crushed walnuts in it. And so my grandfather used to hand make that for that holiday and also for other dishes that used date syrup. And by the time I was 10, we had actually finished the last, like I remember when we finished the last jar of my grandfather's date syrup, you know, so the freezer had kept it from spoiling, right? Like it was almost like a cryogenically preserved extension of my grandfather. And I think less than spoiling food, I think about what happens when the food is finished. What happens when you run out of it? What happens when there's nobody left, you know, who knows the recipe? You know, that's the thing for me that I think is a big part of the impulse and activating, you know, these stories around food, these projects around food is that it's it's like a language. And if I think about my own family's, you know, position in a world that was undergoing all of this tumult, you know, whether it was post-colonialism or if it was, you know, I mean, I think about what happened with the Iraqi Jews in 1941 with the Farhud, the violent dispossession, which a lot of historians refer to as a pogrom, that's an extension of World War II. But my family comes out of that 
And if I think about the fact that they were told that, that they can no longer belong to this place that they love belonging to, you know, there's something about making sure that there isn't an interruption of those transmissions of cultural memory. You know, like I'm really, really, I'm really happy that my grandmother taught my mother and my mother taught me and I'm teaching my kids. And there's always a mutation that happens with that. There's always a slippage. It's never going to be the way it was, you know, which is kind of, it goes back to the artifacts a little bit. These are not 3D printings, you know, that I'm making of these lost artifacts, but you also can't 3D print the DNA of the people that are destroyed along the artifacts, you know? So there's a meaningful amount of, of gap that gets created, almost like you're not pronouncing the word exactly the way it should be pronounced. You know, so I think about food in that way, but I also, I also think it was like a moment of pleasure. Like I didn't, you know, for me, I didn't look up at, at books on shelves, you know, when I was a kid and think, oh my God, you know, this is a great library. I would go into the, the pantry of my grandmother's kitchen and I'd look up at those shelves and there was all that colorful packaging and all of these incredible smells. And I think that that's probably a primal scene you know, and why it is that I do these projects around food. So kind of sticking with the three-dimensional objects that you're making and remaking, your May the Arrogant Not Prevail is an installation you made in Berlin about a decade ago that takes off from the form of the 2,500-year-old Ishtar Gate. Your fourth plinth commission, which I mentioned a moment ago, takes off from a 2,700-year-old form that you've you've made new and and so on have you learned anything about form and the endurance of certain forms through the re, through the remaking of these ancient three-dimensional objects you know that, that there was an interesting moment when i was on the short list for the fourth plinth and the five finalists had their maquettes unveiled at the National Gallery. And one of the members of the British press came up to me, you know, and I, 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 here I am presenting an idea alongside my heroes, you know, the Rocks Media Collective, Damian Ortega, Huma Baba, and Heather Phillipson. And I'm, I'm asked, you know, by, by the interviewer, like, you know, looking at all of these submissions, they're highly conceptual and really, you know, avant-garde and and how does it feel, you know, to be presenting something so classical and traditional? And I I stopped for a second and I thought to myself, you know, I don't think this is traditional. And I, and I said to the the interviewer, I said, "Look, I'm presenting this like part bull, part eagle, part lion, part human, you know, flying deity. You know, that's like surrealism never got that weird." You know, and I um, I started to realize, you know, after after that, that comment, like going to the British Museum, you know, one of the things that accompanied the display of those first Lamasu when they were shown in the British Museum, these these protective deities, that there there was a real fear that people were going to go and start to get curious about other religions. You mean then or then or now? Then, then back in like the early part of the 20th century, there almost, you know, had to be a, a kind of disclaimer 
to not abandon your Christianity because these seem to be powerful symbols that the powerful symbols, you know, had somehow been, you know, bled of their efficacy and their divinity. And so I think that that in and of itself, you know, describes the power. And then in terms of the enduring image, you know, the, the Lamassu appears on one of the dinar notes in Iraq, one of the pieces of currency. The use of that symbol was seen as something by the Assyrian community, which has been traditionally also just persecuted and has had atrocities visited on their communities and has also gone through these periods of exile, you know, that that in a way, you know, it was being used as a unifying symbol of Iraq, but they were, they, they themselves did not feel like they were included in that image of Iraq, that there was a willingness to use their image, you know, but to not afford the same care to the people, which is a lot like what happens with museums and the West's attitude towards preservation and conservation and acquisition of objects, that, you know, the same level of consideration is rarely, if ever, extended to the people. And so I think that the endurance of images like that, of those monuments, because they are monumental, the thing about the Ishtar Gate, and it's a monumental scale. And you think about the Lamassu, and there are they are these sculptural, you know, colossus that one finds throughout the Assyrian and Neo-Assyrian empires. You know that these images do stay with us, and so I've learned more and more about like what these characters were supposed to do. You know, like also the winged deities that you saw in the Nasher. You know that there's a certain kind of function that each each of these deities performed and so you know thinking of them almost like characters out of you know some kind of supernatural tale or some science fiction has been really interesting and i think one of the projects that i'm really kind of like drawn to next is figuring out ways to to give agency to these these objects in a in a separate project but to really think about you know what their you know, what their role was, you know, that they, they were almost like these, they weren't just set pieces. They were, they were actually main characters in, in the creation myths and in the storytelling that accompanied, you know, the Assyrian religion, or in the case of the Ishtar gate, what accompanied, you know, Babylonian belief systems. Yeah. You know, as you mentioned, these remakings you've been doing have been of very, very large things. And they've been very particular forms, in part because to be as large as they are, they had with the technology of the time or working with stone had to have a certain bulk and size, which is an odd way of asking if any of your working with monumental forms has informed a commission you're doing for Margate in the south, on, on the southeastern coast of the UK, which is scheduled as of taping for April 2021, a project that uses two sculptures, two of your sculptures, to, I guess in shorthand, address, to act as a kind of Iraq war memorial slash accusation slash pointed finger at British involvement in, in Iraq, which are human-scaled kind of objects rather than monumental. So if I didn't botch that all too badly, <laughs> did, did, did working in monumental form inform you in any way and working in very non-monumental form? <laughs> well, you know, just a slight correction there. It's, it, it is one form. It's one sculpture. 
But I would say yes, but I also want to draw a very clear line to, you know, my own education as an artist. And I went to MIT and what was then basically a program in public art that was located in the Department of Architecture. And one of my mentors was Krzysztof Wodichko, who has done just amazing work dealing with monuments, whether it's the projections that he does on buildings or the writing that he's done about what a monument is at its moment of inception and what it becomes, you know, centuries and centuries later, and about the need, you know, to be able to speak through monuments. And so I feel as though I, I've had a real interest in this, you know, through my work with Christoph, but also in 1994, before I, I studied with him, when I was still an in, in, in undergrad, there was a book that came out by Samir al-Khalil, which was a pseudonym for Kanan Mekia, who is an Iraqi architect and writer. And he wrote this book called The Monument, which was all about, you know, it was about it was about that one monument that you always see in Baghdad that's the cross swords, which are these monumental versions of Saddam's hands cast in bronze wielding these two swords, and it's basically an archway. It's called the Victory Arch. And so I was reading that book. It drew connections between, you know, Saddam's use of of image and scale in the way that Albert Speer used it in Nazi Germany, in a way that the monument has always been a way of not necessarily, you know, creating spaces of, of collective grieving and mourning and memory, but also really more about a space of intimidation, like an image of the state, and especially in Saddam's era. And one of those monuments that that I I went to MIT with, you know, with knowledge of was the one that was in Basra, which is called the Officers Officers Memorial, and it comprises. 80 figures, none of whom are Saddam, you know, so it's a very different kind of memorial. Most of the monuments that were made in Iraq under Saddam were, were monuments, not really memorials, and they were of Saddam. But this one was made of 80 different officers who had perished, Iraqi officers who had perished during the Iran-Iraq war. And they were presented on the Cornish along the waterway, the Shat al-Arab in Basra in the south of Iraq. And these larger-than-life men were made from Polaroids and other like family mementos that belonged to the uh, deceased soldier's family. You know, so this was like a, a monument that was undertaken in the late 80s. So, of course, there's no 3D scanning. There's no, you know, there's not, not a wealth of digital imagery. You know, so the sculptures are actually very humble in their appearances. But even in that moment of humility, there's this intimidating scale at which they're constructed. And they're put in this mostly Shia area of Iraq, you know, with their hands pointing across or the fingers pointing across the Shat al-Arab towards Iran to kind of point in the direction where they fell. And so, you know, I discussed this monument with Christoph while I was in grad school, you know, because I was interested in everything he was talking about in terms of like Boston's monuments and American monuments, but I was also wondering, like, what what would an intervention look like in Iraq, you know, where you have this monument that was more or less honoring the lives of these soldiers who 
we're kind of like these everyman soldiers, but we're also being instrumentalized to intimidate Saddam's enemies, who were the Shia. And so, you know, that, that conversation, I never really had a place to go with it. But what I appreciated about Christoph was that he really cited the importance of, of, of being able to kind of allow for a monument to almost be dismantled in its, not literally, but in its renewal you know, so that things that spoke to one generation of people that are no longer uh, valid or, or in fact need to be undone could be undone by actually reclaiming the monument and doing something different with it. And so as I thought about the project in Margate, I was thinking more about those conversations that I had with Christoph, you know, than I was really thinking about, say, the Ishtar Gate or the Lamasu. There's more of a connection, I would say, with that project and thinking about like the debate that we're having around Confederate monuments here in the U.S. Your your monument at Margate features, as 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 we've talked about, a guy pointing, and in both, and in terms of what it's pointing at, it's pointing at the Houses of Parliament and and the seat of government in London, you know, which is a ways away. So it's 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 engaged in activating kind of a monumental sized space, even if it's not itself gigantic. And of course, it's also in a certain discourse with other statues, figures, memorial figures on, on, on the British coast, which is a, I don't know, long traditional British thing. So it kind of has, has a self-contained scale, but also references a much larger scale. Finally, over the last 15 years, your work about cultural destruction and erasure has always or almost always addressed the Middle East. And in asking the question I'm about to ask, don't mean to question that or critique your focus on a geography or to suggest that, air quotes, it isn't enough. But, but given that we started 15 years ago with Pruitt-Igo in the United States and destruction and erasure here, I'm curious if you've thought in recent years about expanding your address of destruction and cultural erasure to to the United States, to things that have happened between the Atlantic and the Pacific, or, or, or sites beyond the Philippines, for example? If I think about what I've done in the last 15 years, one of the most pivotal works, I think, was the project that I did in Cleveland with the family of Tamir Rice and also the city, which really kind of looked at the the fury that's felt around the atrocity of this this killing of this murder of this 12-year-old black boy playing with a toy gun and the police report just more or less excusing it in all different manners but also pointing to something that once again is like an object and a color and and focuses on the fact that the orange tip you know, that's meant to kind of signify that something is not a real gun was removed. And therefore, this led to, you know, this this crime where this this 12-year-old is, is killed because of really the color of his skin, not the color of the gun. And so, you know, when I thought about the invitation to work in a city that's still harboring his killers, I started to think about this person's erasure. Tamir Rice's murder you know, happens in a, a vector of history that connects to all the different things that 
that my work addresses. You know, like it or not, they share a timeline. And so if I think about, you know, the neighborhood where Tamir was killed, the Cadell section of Cleveland or Cleveland itself having a, sh- a history that is not necessarily similar to that of St. Louis or Chicago, but it certainly overlaps. The cities in the Midwest as cities that you can say represent American cities. Then I think that that really is looking at these same urgencies and concerns, but not necessarily just looking at through the lens of, say, you know, my own intimate relationship with Iraq. The way that that project unfolded as a kind of reverse solidarity movement, where it wasn't like the orange revolution in Ukraine, where people would wear an orange scarf or wave an orange flag or the green revolution in Iran, where you would do the same. It was about surrendering this color that was affiliated with safety, you know, as something that would, in its speech act, you know, in, in its conceptual framework, imagining a city where one purges this color of safety, you know, this boy couldn't be safe, then nobody should be safe. The impossibility of that still creates something where there is this place, these repositories where people are bringing the orange like a votive to create a memorial that was also taken away. The gazebo under which Tamir was murdered was removed by the city to more or less create a placelessness where one could not go to necessarily grieve his murder and to express rage. In fact, the city, I think, had plans at one point to pave over it, to extend the parking lot. Thank God for people like Theaster Gates, who worked with Miss Rice to make sure that that monument, that that gazebo had a place to go so that those troubled materials would not disappear. There was still a demand you know, for accountability and for some kind of justice that I can't even think about what justice means in a moment where somebody's child is taken from them. But I do think that, like, to answer your question, I'm focused on things like that as much as anything else. And one of the current things that I'm working on right now, I continue to work with Miss Rice and to work with her, to support her on her initiative to get the Tamir Rice Afrocentric Cultural Center you know, to be this incredible thing that she's envisioned to help where that's concerned. But I'm also thinking a lot about monuments in the U.S. and about the desire to disappear the moments where trouble occurs. And I, I saw some very inspiring moments over the summer. I mean, the way in which that that Lee sculpture in Virginia transformed in the wake of the murders of of George Floyd and Ahmed Aubrey and Breonna Taylor and lists of names too long that was amazing to see. And there were moments of Christoph's work that you could see in there where they projected George Floyd's face on the base. And all of a sudden that monument became the monument that the people needed in that moment. And so it was incredible to watch and to see that this is not a pyramidal kind of structure of imagining what a new monument is. But to know that this was a collective action that included a lot of anger and a lot of rage actually made a moment of vision that I'm looking at very closely. And the research project that I'm working on now looks at the person who made that Lee Memorial. And the artist's name was Henry Schrady. And he died before it was actually unveiled. But the project that he was working on before the Lee Monument was unveiled was actually the Grant Monument in Washington, D.C. You know, so I'm interested in the hands of the sculptor 
that that in that time maybe he doesn't see the difference between the two characters that he's sculpting and that's something for us that we're reckoning with in the united states is to really kind of think about who it is that we build monuments and memorials for and is there the difference between the two monuments the the grant monument and the lee monument and is that difference big enough for us to allow from one monument to stay but another one to be removed you know so those are the kinds of questions that i'm planning on asking but my research is really starting with who were these sculptors you know because i'm still responding to these things as a sculptor and i share that vector of history you know with everybody who came before that lee sculpture of course is in richmond in virginia michael rakowitz thank you thank you tyler Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts in Omaha, Nebraska presents Intimate Actions, three new solo exhibitions centered on the theme of intimacy and how it enters into representations of the body, one's connection to space and surroundings, and our relationships. Maria Antelman, Soft Interface, Joey Fauerzo, Inside the Spider's Body, and Paul Ampaji Sapoya, Drop Scene, are on view through April 24, 2021. Between two screens, virtual conversations with the artists and Bemis chief curator and director of programs Rachel Adams, will further explore intimacy and the works on view. Join Sapuya on January 13th and Antelman on January 27th at 12 p.m. Central Time. RSVP to receive Zoom details at bemiscenter.org. American artist Lighty Churchman's imagery is wide-ranging, echoing the sheer abundance of visual information that bombards us daily. The paintings treat equally the subjects of animals, landscapes, themes from Tibetan Buddhism, real estate, adverta- real estate advertisements, and remakes of works by other artists, from Henri Rousseau to Barbara Kruger. Focus, Lighty Churchman, on view at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth, January 22nd through March 21st. Join Getty President Jim Cuno as he talks with artists, writers, curators, and scholars on the Art and Ideas podcast. Learn about black mid-century architect Paul R. Williams from the perspective of his granddaughter, Karen Hudson, and curator Laron Brooks. Hear the story of Japanese-American photographers in pre-World War II L.A. with curator Virginia Heckert. Explore the lives of Pliny the Elder and Younger, plans for rebuilding Beirut after the recent explosions, and an alternative history of surrealism found in Dora Maar's Lost Address Book. Listen and subscribe on your favorite podcast app or visit getty.edu podcasts. Welcome back. Next up, Cincinnati Art Museum curator Julie Aronson joins me to discuss Frank Duvenick, American Master, a retrospective of the Gilded Age Cincinnati-based painter whose teaching and work was also influential in the American Northeast, especially in Boston and in Europe. The exhibition is on view in Cincinnati through March 28. The thorough and richly illustrated exhibition catalog was published by Giles. We'll have links to IndieBound and Amazon so you can purchase it right from manpodcast.com. Julie Aronson. Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. In the catalog, which is terrific, by the way, you note that Frank Duvenek rests in the American art historical middle world between the heights of the cult church, Gifford, and I guess early Innes years, and the rise of European-informed American modernism in the early 20th century. So who were Duvenek's peers, both among Americans who were in Europe when he was, 
and how should we or how might we consider him in in the context of his American then present? So Frank Duvenek was among the first American painters to study in Munich, Germany in the 1870s. And he enters the Munich Academy in the early 70s. And he's followed by artists like William Merritt Chase, who was a very good friend and colleague, and John Henry Twachman, who was one of his students. So he becomes, he arrives in Munich at this moment when the academy is engaged in this very liberal education. And it was a particular moment that encouraged him to experiment and and become adventurous in a way that he might not have been at other times. So he really becomes very closely associated with the Munich artists active at the time, as well as the Americans who studied there, many of whom were attracted to him as a teacher. He also spends time in Italy and becomes engaged in society portraiture. So there are different aspects of his career as he as the 1870s move along and into the 1880s. So he becomes an associate. I mean, he knew John Singer Sargent and knew Whistler quite well. So those artists are also in his orbit. And a woman named Elizabeth Boot, and of course, women artists are not as well known as they should be. And she's a very fine painter who takes up studying with him and then eventually becomes his wife. So these were artists with whom he was very closely associated. He also became an advocate for American Impressionism later in his career and is a very good friend and associate with artists like Child Hassam, Frank Weston Benson, Joseph DeCamp, and others. Duvenek was, you know, in Europe as much as he was in the United States for for many years. Has that, and, and, you know, there were good career reasons for that, right? But has that bicontinentalism, if you will, played a role in limiting his prominence in in the present? I think his experiences in Europe actually enhanced his reputation in America. I think that when he exhibited his work here in the United States, it attracted a great deal of attention, partly because of its European connections. I do think, however, that when he comes back to the United States and he settles in the Midwest, that becomes an issue for him, I think, in the art world to some extent because he's not in New York. And he wasn't the kind of artist who was ambitious in the way in which he sent his work to every exhibition in the United States, which was the way many American artists' reputations were solidified. He instead tended to send his works to exhibitions locally and, you know, would have send earlier work off to World's Fairs and the like, but was not really ambitious in the way he managed his career. There is a painting in your show in the collection of the Davis Museum at Wellesley that Duvenek made in his late 20s. It's a copy of a Velasquez painting of Juan Martinez Montañez. What do you think Duvenek learns from Velasquez and, and how important will Velasquez's example be to the next couple decades of his career at least? Velasquez was one of the greatest influences on Duvenek's work. He was able to see some of his paintings in the Alta Pinacotech in Munich when he was a student, and he was very attracted to the Spanish masters, who were important for other American painters as well. They gave him an example of how to manipulate paint to some extent and how to create a sense of liveliness in a portrait. 
by the manipulation of paint on the canvas and the way in which you could move, move it around. And I think that that's one of the great lessons that he learns from the Spanish painters. I mean, there are certainly aspects of composition and the way in which character is conveyed in a head that he also achieves that way. The other great influence was Franz Hals. And you do see a lot of Hals's influence in the way in which he composes a portrait and in brushwork. He doesn't imitate them exactly. He never goes in for imitation, although he did copy, certainly work as a copyist, like many artists did of his generation. But he instead kind of gets gets at what it is that gives their paintings this, that, you know, feeling of life. And that's where I think the lessons are to be learned. There's a painting in your collection that's almost the exact same size as the Velasquez copy that points right at Halls. Halls becomes very important as an example. And, and this way in which, you know, artists in the 17th century were very interested in ways in which you could convey expressiveness, whether it be somebody, you know, laughing or smiling or very serious at the same time or having a, you know, sense of the person's importance and stature through their pose or ego. And, you, and he gets that. He completely understands that. And you see it coming through in his work. So in these early years, in the 1870s and 80s, Duvenek is primarily a portraitist. What makes him a good portraitist? What's, what's he doing well? Do you have a favorite example or two? Oh, there were many favorite examples. I would say one of them is the portrait of Professor Lefetz, who actually was a fellow student and later a professor, in which he manages to convey this kind of, there's a kind of gravity to the portrait. But at the same time, I mean, I brought a patron into the galleries a couple of weeks ago, and they looked at it and they're like, wow, that's so real. And it's so real, but it's not precisely detailed. The reality is really through the sense of character that you get by looking at the portrait, not so much the, you know, just the attention to every little detail and description. We'll have an image of, of that one on manpodcast.com, something about the way the professor is holding his cigar, you know, it, with, with ash at the end kind of contributes to all that. Right. Well, and I would say the hand is one of my favorite passages of that painting. Duvenek also has a way of giving you the sort of sense of the almost like the like, a, you know, a hand is moving. It's got a life to it that many artists don't. You know, he's not interested in giving you elegant tapered fingers and the like in many of these paintings. It's just a sense that there's a, an energy there. How, when and why does he broaden his practice beyond portraiture? Well, one of the first instances, major instances of that is when he goes out to the countryside to paint. And of course, everybody was kind of engaged in outdoor painting, you know, beginning in the 18, you know, in the 1870s and into the late 19th century and actually starting earlier with the Barbizon artists in France. So he's very interested in painting. He becomes interested in painting outdoors. And there's this, you know, period of just a few years where he spends time in polling, which is a little artist colony outside of Munich in the, at the foothills of the Bavarian Alps. And he paints landscapes, and they are among some of my favorite paintings in the exhibition. And he brings that same kind of vibrancy to them that he brings to his portraits. There's a feeling of, you know, a tree can seem like very much something that's alive and moving in the same kind of way. And he, he just revels in the qualities of the paint and the medium that he's using in these, in these pictures. Sometimes he just lets it drip. He's not concerned with, with finish 
or with finishing anything really, which is something that's pretty consistent throughout his career. But he really loves painting and you get you get that feeling. <laughs> there are a limited number of finished paintings, you know, things that, you know, might have been considered finished that he would that he would, you know, maybe sell and that sort of thing. But he loved the way the paint would just drip on the canvas. And that becomes something that's very much admired by his students and people who have become the aficionados of his work. How and why does he go to Italy? Well, he's attracted to Italy initially because he wants to see the works of Titian. And Titian is another one of his heroes. And you can see this, the influence of Titian in some of his portraits, particularly like if you think, for example, of the portrait of his future father-in-law, Francis Boot, wearing his impressive fur coat. And he uses Titian as a way to give his figures this kind of impressiveness sometimes. I think that's a great example. So he goes to Venice, you know, when he's still a student in Munich, and he becomes very excited by seeing the paintings of the Venetian Renaissance masters. Of course, he's completely seduced by the atmosphere of Venice, which, of course, was we are still today, obviously. And artists were just very moved by in the 19th century and couldn't get enough of. So he goes back to Italy. He moves to Italy because of his growing relationship with his student, Elizabeth Boot. She first meets him in Venice, actually, and then arranges to take private lessons with him in Munich. And she is an expatriate who lives in Florence. That's her home base. She and her widowed father. And she has a circle of women students in Florence and asks Duvenek to come to Florence to teach a class for her friends. So he moves base to Florence and teaches a class for women, which women still had relatively few opportunities for formal study in Europe at this time. So they were very excited to learn from his instruction, and she was completely enthralled with watching him paint and with learning his techniques. So he teaches a class for women, and he also comes with a group of male students, Americans, that he had been teaching in Munich, who became known as the Duvenek Boys, and they went along to Italy with him. So he settles in Italy for quite some time. He also he spends time in Florence in the winters and in Venice in the summers, and in Venice, he becomes associated with Whistler and takes up etching with a great deal of seriousness and success and becomes quite known for his etchings. So why did etching become important to Duvenek? And was that kind of a following of Whistler or were there other reasons that it appealed to him? Duvenek was always experimental throughout his life. He was always he was interested in trying new things. And I mean, he wasn't really interested in doing something that was going to be commercial. That wasn't his interest at all. So Duvenek was interested in trying new media. And often these things happened in association with other artists who were around him who would encourage him to try different things. And Otto Henry Barker was actually an important artist in this regard because he had been making etchings and had an etching press. And it's, it's unclear whether, I mean, I'm sure that Whistler was an influence, but how exactly that relationship came about and whether it was because of that relationship that Duvenek tried etching, I don't know. But certainly Whistler and Barker and Duvenek were all making etchings together. 
and a number of the, the other associates, the Dubnek boys, made etchings at this time, too. So I think it is in part a kind of collaborative process for Dubnek, too, which I think he really enjoyed. He was a very social artist. So I think that becomes part of it. One thing that our project talks about in a way that hasn't really been looked at before was the importance of drawing to Duvenek's career and to his art practice. And etching, of course, grows out of drawing. And I think he always was attracted to line and what that might do. He does look at things very differently in the etchings than he does in the paintings that precede it. And, you know, even the Venetian oil sketches that he does, in which he are really among the most free of his entire career are those incredible paintings from the early 80s of Venetian waterways, which are just, you know, so lively and, you know, and broadly painted. And he's working in a very fine way. And I think maybe he enjoyed exercising a different part of his brain and his hand in doing the etchings. You mentioned his interest in exploring different media. His etchings are really finely detailed, really more finely detailed than Whistler's, who are, whose etchings are often sketchier. And I don't mean sketchier in the <laughs> pejorative sense. I mean sketchier in the sense of they're, they feel like sketches. Duvenek also made a lot of monotypes, which feel much faster, much quicker than, than the etchings. Why does he make monotypes? Are they kind of an opposite process for him? They're, they're really good. <laughs> they are. They're wonderful. The monotypes, well, again, it's, a, it's kind of a social art making practice because many of the artists made monotypes at sort of monotype parties. <laughs> they'd make them together. They'd all be together and they'd sit and make monotypes because it was something you could do in, you know, in an evening very easily. And I think it was kind of a, an extension of this, these sort of artist circles socializing and making art together. But I also think that they're, they're analogous to his paintings in many ways. And so they, you know, he can work very broadly and use all kinds of unconventional techniques. You know, he could use his fingers and he could use, you know, various and sundry kind of tools to scratch into them and get a kind of immediate thrill, which I think was always one of Duvenick's things because he loved to be able to paint it, you know, do a painting in, an, in you know, an afternoon and just leave it in a kind of semi-finished state, you know. So I think that there's a lot of kind of energy involved in doing these monotypes that you feel and kind of spontaneity that he enjoyed. There's a monotype portrait in the show from 1884 of William L. Whitney that feels like a party monotype, full of spontaneity and verve and humor. Yeah, the, the artists also really enjoyed making caricatures of each other <laughs> or caricatures of other friends and their associates in their circle. Duvenek's one thing I should say is that his are rather larger than what most artists were doing, his monotype plates. I think he liked working on a bigger surface, and it allowed him to be even broader in the way in which he was approaching the medium. What was the relationship between Henry James and Duvenek, and why is it important? So Henry James, in the 1870s, when Duvenek first exhibits his work to great acclaim in Boston, Henry James wrote some really fantastic and evocative reviews of Duvenek's work. They're wonderful wordsmithing and great fun to read. Later, James is, becomes a very, very close friend of Elizabeth Boots and that whole expatriate circle in Florence. And because of his relationship with Boot, Duvenek becomes a more personal 
association than he had been previously where James was writing about his work. James had somewhat of an, an obsession with the boots. He was fascinated by them. And Duvenek becomes this outsider who kind of intrudes into this hothouse circle. <laughs> and he uses that as a springboard for characters in some of his novels, including Portrait of a Lady. It's interesting to see, I mean, Colm Toybean, who writes for the catalog, explores this in some detail and looks closely at this relationship and the way in which these characters play out in his books. He's also a, you know, a wonderful letter writer, and he has some rather colorful things to say about Dubinek. He has a lot of trouble understanding Elizabeth's fascination and love for this man who is from a different class. And one of the things I think that makes Duvenek an outsider in this circle is his lack of erudition. And James makes comments about how he can't have a conversation of more than two minutes with Duvenek. And he calls him unlicked in one letter. And, <laughs> and he just, you know, he just has a lot of trouble, you know, understanding how Elizabeth could have fallen for this person. And so it's, it's a fascinating story and very colorful. So ultimately, having, having worked on this project, what have you decided Duvenek's legacy has been? Well, part of it is these just wonderful paintings that you can look at and you can just, you feel like you can talk to the people in these paintings. He can make the past seem very alive. And I think that that's a wonderful thing. And for anybody who likes to paint, just looking at the sheer bravura with which he can lay down a stroke with such confidence, I think is, it seems miraculous. I also think that as a teacher, he was really considered to be one of the great, greatest teachers of his generation up there with artists like Aikens and other really important teachers. And some of the artists who studied with him, including, I would say most notably would be Twachman, would be one of the most notable, went on to very important careers of their own and always thought that he was really the source of their greatness in many ways. So I think as a whole, leg a whole generation of American painters that look to Duvenek as being their great master. And we might not have had that work, or their work may have not have looked the way it did had they not started out studying with him. He also had an importance. This is something that my former colleague, Anita Ellis, explored in a catalog on Rookwood and the American Indian. He was a very important influence on the artists at the Rookwood Pottery Company, which is greatly considered to be one of the most important art potteries in America in the late 19th century and the early 20th century. And many of those artists studied painting with Duvenek here in town. And Mariah, along with Nichol Storer, who was the head of the company, was the one who lured Duvenek back to Cincinnati to teach. He was, after he came back to the U.S., he was kind of shuttling back and forth between Boston and, and Cincinnati and hadn't fully settled here. And she convinced the director of the Cincinnati Art Museum to invite Duvenek back to teach a class. And many of the artists in that class, if not most of them, were Rookwood decorators. So he has an important legacy for the history of the pottery as well. Rookwood pottery, of course, being a, a Cincinnati concern between roughly 1880 and 1970-ish, and the name was brought back 10 or 15 years ago. I imagine Duvenek's legacy also is tied up in how much he was involved in institutionally. <laughs> 
in, in, in the last decade or two of his career, from forming organizations of painters to sitting on juries to even the response to his work in 1915 from, from the San Francisco World's Fair. Right. He was very involved institutionally and in, right, he served on juries for countless exhibitions across the country. In fact, he was in such high demand that he had to turn down invitations sometimes. And at the Panama Pacific Exposition in San Francisco, he was one of several artists who were awarded a major gallery with a retrospective of his work, and he was given a special medal of honor by the International Jury of Awards, who was so impressed with his work there and knowledgeable about his role as a teacher that they decided that he was worthy of this great honor. He also was very important for the history of the Cincinnati Art Museum, not only as a donor of a very substantial body of his own work and work by other artists, but also because he was very interested in making the Midwest a more hospitable place for artists to send their work and encouraging collecting. He was instrumental in the formation of the Art Museum's collection of American paintings, particularly the work of the American Impressionists, and became a very important advocate for those artists. He was instrumental in the presentations of Twachman's work, several exhibitions of Twachman's work at the Art Museum. And every artist who sent their painting to Cincinnati would say, please send my regards to Duvenek. Or when we acquired one of the paintings, we have numerous letters in our archives that say, I'm so glad Duvenek liked my work. It's very, you know, it was very important to them that Duvenek was involved in the acquisition of these paintings, and they wanted it to be known how much they appreciated that. So he also was one of the founders of the Society of Western Artists, which was Western being Midwestern for the most part. And that was because of the feeling among artists in the Midwest that that it was very difficult for them to support their careers in this part of the country. And so it was, he was the first president of that organization and one of the founding members. Julie Aronson, thanks so much. Thank you very much for having me. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.